Hey guys, this week's episode is going to be really different uh, from any other episode I've already done. First of all, I'm actually sitting in my teaching studio where I teach drums. I'm not sitting in my office like I normally am, so if the sound is different, that's why. Second, I sat down with Marvin Maxwell, who is technically my boss. He owns Mom's Music, him and Beverly. But more than my boss, he's just an awesome, awesome, kick-ass old dude who's seen more shit than the rest of us can even fathom. So when I decided I wanted to sit down with him, I kind of figured that I would be abandoning the majority of my show format. So there's no social media issues, there's no stories from the stage, and there's no what am I listening to. This is just basically a conversation with Marvin, um, or should I say Marvin talking, and me just listening and learning. I think every once in a while, us guys should just sit down with somebody who does what we do, but did it in a different era, and just listen. I think sometimes people just don't listen enough. Uh, Marvin's an awesome dude, but as I said, I knew it was going to be a lot of him talking, uh, and that's exactly what I got, and that's exactly what I wanted. So there's no normalcy in this episode. It just kind of is what it is, but I'm super happy with it. So I hope you guys dig it, and on with the show. The Bar Star Podcast, hosted by Stephen O'Reilly, is a podcast about working musicians, their friends, and their opinions. Stephen is a musician in Louisville, Kentucky, who has... Wait a second. This guy's a drummer, not a real musician? Somebody gave a drummer a microphone for his voice? The hell? Unreal. Unbelievable. to another episode of the Bar Star Podcast. I am your host, Stephen O'Reilly. I want to thank you guys for coming back to hang out with me once again. I'm super excited about today. I suspect you are as well. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody had a good week, and I hope you guys went out and did some shit. And I am not flying solo today. I am hanging out with the one, the only, the super legendary ask him he'll tell you he's a legend i'm cute too and he is cute <laughs> marvin maxwell how are you sir it's me it's me it's marvin d <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you ain't having a good time do something else i i concur sir i'm a true believer of that so what's going on how's things how's life well other than being old and i hurt a lot of places seriously what uh, are you like 50 here, let me give you some cash. That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I take 20s and 100s. No, let me think a second. I th- I'm 72. I'll be 73 in June. Nice. And uh, I'm still playing. Yes, you are. And uh, they said I'd never walk again. I showed them bastards. Yes, you did. But yes, anyway, you did. yeah, I'm still playing. In fact, I did a recording session last night, uh, which uh, I didn't even get paid for. I left and I thought... Well, shit, I'm not coming back here again. <laughs> I'd never been there. They just called me for a session, and they thanked me, and I thought, well, that's nice. Now, where's my cash? <laughs> but, uh, Pat on the back is cool, but I need something else. Oh, man. I tell you what, you know, uh, you're, you're a young cat, but 
I, I wish there had been a book written about the old days here in Louisville. In uh, one studio especially, there was a whole lot of recording done in Louisville. And I've never figured out why exactly, because they never had any big hits. There was some national things out. But uh, there was a little studio here, and originally it was called Sambo, which was uncool in later, and I get around to 60s and all the the racial things that happened. It was changed later to Alan Martin, but the original Sambo uh, uh, Studios, uh, the, the name stood for Sanders Alan Martin. That was uh, Jack Sanders, uh, who used to date Audrey uh, Williams, Hank Williams ex. Uh, oh, nice. But uh, and he's he's passed away now. But uh, uh, and A was for Allen. That was Ray Allen. He's still around. And M was for Martin. That was Hardy Martin. He was an engineer. That was the Sam. And B O uh, wasn't body odor. It was uh, booking. Yeah, body odor's nasty. <laughs> Nobody likes the body odor. But that's how groups worked in this area. That they people <coughs> were going to Nashville and cutting at their records and. Uh, uh, in fact, Ray and Hardy uh, played in one of the groups, and they used to go to Nashville and, and cut down there. In fact, I think they cut at Monument back in those days. And uh, they got the idea, well, we need to do that in Louisville and because uh, we're already booking the bands. Right. And uh, uh, so they, they built a studio out in J-Town, and the building's even gone now, but I'd give anything if somebody had written a book about it because you'd be really surprised how many people cut there uh, back in the day of the, the 60s and the 70s. But it's gone now. In fact, I bought all the masters from there. There's, they're downstairs, and there's thousands of them. Nice. Well, I knew you had some old masters, but we had never, we had never really talked about where they came from. Well, that was from uh, they they the, the they had saved all the masters. Of course, uh, everything was analog. It was all on tape. Uh, everything from quarter inch stuff that had been mixed down all the way up to twenty four track two inch stuff. <coughs> and a lot of people knew it existed, and especially people from Europe. Uh, would bug the hell out of them trying to get them to release some of that stuff, and they got tired of it. Right. And I went to them and said, boys, I said, I know you're tired of dealing with these damn tapes. I said, I'd like to buy them from you, and, and uh, you know me all you're in my life. I said, you know damn well I'm not going to do anything intentionally to uh, do anything wrong with them or anything, but uh, somebody needs to have a hold of those things. So I did a deal with them, and... Uh, uh, another friend that played in a group in the 60s here called the Oxfords. They had quite a few records out. He worked in a studio, a big studio up in Cincinnati, and he took it on to start transferring that stuff digitally uh, so we could save it. Nice. And then uh, he made copies for me. We put them on CDs. And uh, uh, then uh, the radio station here, FPK, uh, found out about it. And uh, uh, so we, we uh, started a show uh on Thursday evenings uh, called uh, Louisville's Lost and Found. Nice. And uh, you can still hear those shows that they've all been uh, saved online. If you just go, the, the, the corporate, am I talking too much? No, absolutely not. The, the corporation that I formed to buy those tapes, because I didn't want everybody's grandma on my ass, <laughs> what's he going to get paid for this when you don't get shit out of it to start with? Right. And so I formed a corporation called Groovy Music. And uh, so if you go to Groovy Music Inc. online, uh, those shows are all archived on there. Nice. And it was a weekly show, and it, we pre-recorded it. And we every week we had on the show somebody who had participated in that session. 
And if they were in California or they were in Nashville or something, I'd at least get them on the phone and we'd do a thing on the phone. Right. Because uh, Lonnie Mac, uh, we, we had to do that uh, uh, over the phone. And there were some people in California we did over the phone. Sometimes, hell, I had Ray and Hardy in there, the old owners and engineers of all that stuff. I had a lot of different people on those shows. And uh, I think that ran for 13 weeks. And then uh, I didn't realize it, but they ran it all again for uh, another 13 weeks, and I was told that it was one of the most popular shows that they'd had ever had on the on the radio down there. Nice. Now, yeah. what time period would that have been when they ran the show? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, about 10 years ago, I guess. So early 2000s, basically. Yeah, yeah, I would or say. Or mid-2000s, I, I, I really don't remember. I don't, uh, I'm a drummer. Get, I can't um, fucking count. Well, that's, you know, uh, I, I can do it backwards, so. <laughs> <laughs> but... But anyway, so all those things were on there, and it's pretty much the history of uh, of uh, the bullshit that went on because there's some terrible stuff on there that they recorded, and there's some great stuff on there. Right. And there's some stuff on there that uh, uh, that I played on that that uh, hell even even Hanna Barbera, the cartoon people even had a, a a record label back in those days, and some of the stuff that I did got released on Hanna Barbera, uh, and for some reason it was a lot of people came out of Ohio down here. Uh, to record, huh. uh, and, and one of them, in fact, I saw in a in a magazine where a certain blues singer had passed away, and I thought, man, that's that sounds familiar. And uh, I got to looking, and I thought, well, I played on all them sessions. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you know, another thing I want to tell you about this because this is funny, and, and I've never heard this before. Or I wouldn't say it, but when I was uh, I was down at the station one day doing the show, right? And one of the engineers came out there and said, "There's some uh, some young buck out here that wants to interview you." And I said, "Well, I'll be out there in a few minutes." So I went out, and it was this young man out there, and, and I could tell by his complexion and what have you that he wasn't an American, uh, and and uh, so he wasn't really hip to what all goes on here. And he, of course, he was way younger than me. Hell, I'm old as dirt. And and uh, so he wanted to know about the old days, and I was telling him about the Louisville bands and how we all had our forty fives out and everything. And this guy kind of stepped backwards and looked weird. And the engineer said, "Marvin, he thinks you're talking about guns, forty fives." Uh, and, and it yeah, kind of uh, kind of freaked him out when I said that, and I'd never <laughs> even thought about that before. I well, that's true. I mean, yeah. He, I mean, he, he was uh, he was one of those countries over there, and that's forty five to him was a gun. wasn't true. a record. And, it wasn't a record. Yeah, yeah. but that's. That's, That's the deal. I was a very simple playing drummer, uh, and still am. Uh, uh, as old as I am, I don't have very good chops. Hell, I never did have very good chops, but I played very, very steady. So uh, I used to somewhat brag about it. And uh, if I played on your record, and, and if you uh, checked it, you'd probably find out at the end of the tune, it was exactly the same tempo as when the tune started. And I never used a quick a click track at all. Right. And uh, so that's why I worked so many of those sessions is not because of what I played. It's in those days. It's pretty much what you don't play. Right. But just make sure it's the same tempo as all the way through, and nobody pushes or shoves. And that was tough. Uh, I did a lot of a uh, lot of gospel recording. Right. In fact, uh, somebody told me. Uh, I think it was Ricky Skaggs. I played on a session that he played on. We were just side men. And I ran into him down in uh, Nashville, and I, th I think it was Ricky Skagg said, uh, do, you, "Do you remember that session we played on?" I said, "Yeah," and, and it was a gospel session. And he said that was the first gospel sell session to sell a million copies. And I couldn't believe that. But uh, and, and the dude's name Damn. was it was a gospel session. He used to be on Hee Haw. What was his name? 
man, I don't even remember his name. He's gone. He's dead now. But, but there was all that. You know, there was just all kinds of stuff. And those gospel sessions was really tough because uh, gospel sessions uh, uh, consisted of. Uh, a brother and a cousin and a sister and a father and what have you, and, and their brother-in-law <laughs> it was played a family affair. Well, yeah, and their brother-in-law played piano, and of course those guys played by ear, so the tempos were just all over the place. And I'm right. trying to hold this thing for two or three minutes to an exact tempo, and and uh, it, it was really hard. Uh, no, those I were can really imagine. hard uh, trying to keep those guys from rushing and slowing down and what have you, and that, that was some of the hardest sessions. The other ones were very enjoyable. Uh, a lot of stuff was with Lonnie Mack, uh, which some of you listeners probably have heard of. Lonnie passed on about two or three years ago. Uh, but a lot of stuff was with Lonnie. And, now, uh, who is Lonnie? Because you've talked to, you've told, you've mentioned that name to me before, just in passing. Well, uh, Lonnie Mack had uh, he had some big hits in the '60s. One of them was called Memphis, and one of them was called Wham, and they were both instrumentals. Right. And I've read uh, uh, somewhere that if you asked. Uh, some of these uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan guys and such back then, uh, who influenced you in your early days, uh, probably four out of five of them would say Lonnie Mack. Gotcha. Because his, his tone was very different. Uh, he used an amp that uh, has just now been re-released. In fact, Billy Gibbons is playing through some of them now. There were uh, They had a weird tone to them, and they had a, a combination of vibrato, and tremolo. That's kind of hard to explain. It's a bit Leslie sounding, but it's not Leslie sounding because nobody's ever been able to make a pedal that would sound just like it. But it had a certain circuit to it, and it was done with a tube. Nice. And, uh, oh, my gosh, what the... Damn, I can't even think of the name of the amp, but it's back out now, and they've got that same circuit in it. Well, that's all right, because the cool part about doing a podcast, just side note on specific garbage that nobody gives a shit about, I can find out and I can put it in the description of the show. Well, I was going to say, people li- listen to the show, oh, yeah, they're yeah, going to yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, not Standell. Who the hell was it? But it's back out now because I saw Billy Gibbons was using some of them. And again, that tone that came out of that amplifier. Bo Diddley. I was on the road with Bo Diddley for a month. And he used that same amplifier, and they were out of business by then. And his was so ragged that we did uh, we did thirty shows. Well, those were Dick Clark days. I traveled with a couple of the Dick Clark uh, tours, and uh, uh, we do thirty shows in thirty days in thirty states. And Man. I guarantee you, 50, 15 of those days, uh, Bo Diddley before we went on was backstage with a soldering iron trying to get that damned amplifier working again, fixing his amp because that was his tone. <laughs> Right and, and, and uh, he wasn't going to play without that tone. And uh, but it's back out again, and they're very expensive because we were going to take it on here at Mom's to take the line on. But guy starting the two twelve amp was twenty two hundred dollars, and I thought, Oosh. yeah, that's that's, uh, that's that's not out there. So that's a little crazy. Anyway, uh, what was I even talking about? It doesn't matter because I, I have a, I have a question for you. <laughs> oh. Well, actually, first, uh, for those of you that have been listening to my show for a while, thank you again. Uh, this is the first show I'm doing not in my office. I record all my shows in my office in my house. Oh. Now, I'm in my teaching studio in your store. Kind of oh. cool. Kind of weird. It kinda is. Cool. It's, kinda, it's not kinky, is it? It, it depends. Depends what <laughs> we, your outlook is. got our clothes on, so I don't guess it. Well, my shoes are still on, so oh, we're good. Well, just one of them. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting there. I'm getting there. But I, I do, and most of, my, most of my people know that I don't really do interviews, but for you... I'm gonna make an exception to my own rule because you are fascinating. I get to talk to I get the pleasure to talk to you every day, and so I, there's a lot of stuff I know, but there's a lot of stuff I don't know. So I might ask you some questions. You ready? 
Sure. I'll give you some money first. Uh, $11. I do can, anything for $11. Can I give you $10.50? We can talk about it. You can pay me later. <laughs> I'll, I'll owe you the 50 cents. Um, the biggest question I have, because I don't know, is when did you start playing drums? Seven years old. I... Uh, uh, at home, I lived. I was raised in the country, and uh, evidently was beaten on the furniture and the table and stuff with knives and forks. And a little town called New Washington, Indiana, was about three miles from my home. And my mom, they were going to start a band there, a school band. And uh, my mom took me over there to sign me up for the school band to see if they would let me be a drummer. Nice. So I, uh, I did that in school, and in later years when I. Uh, about the time I became a teenager, uh, uh, there was a, a dude in town here. His name's John Roy, Johnny Roy. Which you've talked to me about him before. Yeah, he's uh, John's. Uh, he's uh, he got some age on him now. He's in his nineties, but he's still playing gigs. But what a fine, fine drummer he is! And so uh, my my school band teacher they used to live here in Louisville and come up to our school to teach band up there. And uh, uh, he got me hooked up with John Roy down here, and I would come in. Actually, I came down here to the, in town twice a week. My darling mother, would, uh, who hated to drive in town, of course, but she drove me to Louisville uh, twice a week. She, she took me to the Louisville Academy of Music, uh, which was out on, uh, oh gosh darn, I forgot what street it is. But anyway, John Roy was teaching there, and uh, and it was nothing on a kit or anything. This was just on a pad right. and, and reading. Right. And uh, so I started taking lessons uh, once a week uh, in reading. I already read some. I had to to be in the school band, obviously. And then uh, later, there was a, a big music store in Louisville called Durloff's, which has been gone for many years now. But uh, uh, John was teaching on the kit. Uh, at Durloff's, so she would drive me back down here for a lesson on the kit uh, uh, once a week too. So I came to Louisville twice a week. Once was reading on a pad, and the right. other one was working on a drum kit. Nice, that's pretty freaking cool. I, it, it's the one thing that I love about talking to so many drummers because you and I know a lot of mutual drummers, and then I know all my drummer friends from Atlanta and out of different towns and all that shit, but. We all have the one thing in common. We started beating on shit when we were little. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every well, one uh, of us. Most of them were body parts. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. Hand me that stick. Give me that. I need that thing. Um, oh, shit the bed. Well, when and how, it's kind of a double question, but when and how did you decide to open Mom's? Because that, I actually, as much time as you and I have spent together, I, I've never asked you that, and I don't know. Well, actually, uh, in the 60s, uh, man, I don't know how this happened, but I went to work for the uh, Baldwin Piano Company, which was a worldwide big piano company, right. uh, obviously. But they had a, a, a store in downtown Louisville, and uh, I was playing rock and roll, uh, and it was right beside of a radio station. A big radio station back then was WKLO. And it was on uh, Walnut Street, which is Muhammad Ali's street now, but that was on Walnut Street. And uh, there was a radio station right beside of, of, uh, of Baldwin's. And somehow, you know, we, we had records out then, uh, and we'd been traveling with the Dick Clark Caravan. So you had, you'd already been playing at that oh, point. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, so some way— Or I should say touring, sorry. Uh, I went to work for Baldwin Piano Company, and believe it or not, 
uh, I'm a piano technician. I went to work in their, in their shop. They had one of the nicest uh, piano shops in the country. When the Boston Pop Orchestra wanted their, their grand pianos rebuilt, they would send them to Louisville, to Baldwin's, for those, those old guys up there in the shop on the third floor to rebuild their pianos. Damn. And that's when I worked, went to work for Baldwin doing that. I wanted a job, and uh, so I went to work for that. And then Baldwin, believe it or not, uh, wanted to get in the uh, rock and roll business, and their home office was in Cincinnati. And they had Baldwin Piano Company had stores all over the world. And, but their home office, again, was just, you know, 100 miles from Louisville, so they were very close to the to uh, to that store. Right. And uh, Baldwin came out with uh, their own line of guitars and uh, organs, uh, combo organs for bands and uh, rock and roll stuff, guitars and amps and right. all kinds of stuff. So they wanted to start selling that stuff, and I'd already been associated with that crap, so they wanted me to help run that, that department. And uh, in fact, uh, the band I was in for those years was a band called Soul Incorporated, and uh, uh, they signed us on as a Baldwin group. And in fact, there's a big poster downstairs by my office of uh, of all the Baldwin, Jay and Americans, and gosh, I don't remember who it was, but they were all Baldwin groups, and we were in that same uh, same thing. So we were pretty much experimentals uh, for their guitars and amps and stuff. They had. Uh, some uh, some big amps. In fact, they were called exterminators. They were about four or five foot tall, <laughs> and we used six of them on stage, and, and for the guitars and bass. And this was in the '60s. This is in the '60s. And See, kids, and, and, and big fact, ass amps have been around forever. Oh, absolutely. Man. <laughs> that was the first time we had, we had. Roadies. It wasn't just the metal dudes that did it. Well, and and uh, we'd already done one of the Dick Clark uh, tours. Uh, Dick Clark in those days. Whereas now you have you have one big group. Uh, uh, in fact, I read an article once of what what happened because back in those days, instead of going and seeing one artist and maybe an opening act, you'd see a half a dozen to a dozen different acts, and they'd right. and they'd package them on a on a uh, a package tour, and they'd be a half a dozen to a dozen groups uh, uh, on a bus or two, and that's what you'd do. You'd start doing one nighters uh, uh, all over the country and. Like I said, uh, what, they'd be a 30, 30 shows in 30 days in 30 states, and the routing just sucked. Because one night you'd be in Atlanta, and the next night you'd be in Wisconsin, and the next night you'd be in Florida, and the next night you'd be back up in Chicago. Yeah, it's and there was times. <laughs> there's times I can remember when the bus would roll in, and we would immediately go to the dressing room and change clothes and go on stage from the night before. You know, it was that, that much traveling. Right. And... Uh, so anyway, uh, these these Baldwin amps. It was funny because uh, they were new, and we we'd blow the hell out of them. And the engineers <laughs> thought, well, how are we going to keep these guys from blowing these things up? And so they they put light bulbs inside of the amplifier, uh, hooked in with the speaker line, so that when you came down real hard on them, the light bulb would come on. And it would take the shock away from those speakers to keep from blowing them. And you know, down at Damn, the bottom on the smart. Well, yeah, but at the bottom on the back side of the amp, there was a hole at the bottom where you shoved your AC cable, unplugged it, and shoved it back in the amp. Right. And I remember when when they introduced us, and we come on with a bang, the whole damn back of the stage would light up from all the light coming from out of the that <laughs> hole at the bottom of these amplifiers. <laughs> So I had to get in there and rewire them a little bit and throw them light bulbs away. <laughs> Those were the days. Those amps were called exterminators, and they were uh, they were something else. But they had a nice line of guitars too. In fact, you can still buy the guitars. Uh, this is what 50 years later. 
they're they were made in Europe. They're uh, they're Burns guitars, is what they were. You can still oh, buy brand you. new Burns guitars, and they're nice looking guitars. But that's they, in those days they were Baldwin guitars, and huh. we were again we used all Baldwin gear. So that's how we got tied up with them. Well, how did that lead you into opening mobs? Uh, well, there was a lot of things happened in between. There's another company that I did called Maxwell Systems back in the seventies. Uh, well, how do I say this? I don't want to say the wrong things. My, I can edit. My it. grandkids. I, said. I can edit. Well, I was a speed out. freak <laughs> in those days, and or uh, I cannot edit anything out. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was going, 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 and uh, and. Uh, uh, things were such a mystery to me in, in the rock and roll and amplifiers and things, so I did a lot of reading and experiment, and I came out with a line of speakers. Uh, and there's still some around. I've got some up at the house. In fact, they had a plate on front of them said Maxwell Systems. Uh, I was telling my grandson last night that uh, oh, it was a big English group. Who the hell was it? They, I built, anyway, I built hundreds or, I guess, thousands of speaker systems uh for bands and uh that was an interim in there uh and and uh what are we talking about <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, uh you know i was just involved in a whole lot of things luckily everything that i was involved with through those years had to do with music right and uh, uh i went for uh, to, to baldwin's and then i did maxwell systems then I got tied up with somebody uh, that had a music. No, actually, he he came to me and said that uh, uh, would you uh, if I, I would come up with the money would you start a thing with me and and I did, and uh, that was called Far Out Music, which right. is gone now. And I uh, after a while I, I walked away from that and very disappointed. Gotcha. And uh, and I had to start all over again. And and uh, being from the country. Uh, I always liked the the idea of a musician's general store, but that's there was so many groups on the road back then. Uh, it, that's hard to remember, and it's long. So I thought, whoever took care of you better than your mom. So right. that's why I came up with Mom's Musician's General Store, uh, and uh, I started it out in a shopping center out Barstown Road in Piccadilly, huh. and then I, then when the old uh, uh, the old moms over here on Frankfurt Avenue, when that building uh, was empty, it used to be a nightclub, and it was a cool old building. And uh, so I moved it in there, and we kept going and got bigger and bigger. And uh, uh, then this building that we're in now became available, and uh, uh, Max, my son, uh, wanted to do this. So I sold the old store and bought this and retired. And... Uh, after a while, uh, a couple of years or so, he uh, decided this wasn't for him. Right. Actually, what I told him was, son, if I had my way, I wouldn't even be in retail because I, I was building sound systems and such back then, and especially churches and things. They were just really getting into having some nice sound systems. And I said, I'd have me a small warehouse and a desk and a computer and a telephone, and I'd go out and do these bids right. on on sound systems, and when I would get one, I'd order the stuff, and when it came in, I'd put it in and go to the next one. Well, that's what he decided he wanted to do. So that's he true. said, uh, he said, I'm tired. I'm, I'm tired of selling drums. I'm tired of selling guitars. I'm tired of doing this. So he split and did that. And uh, so I had to come back and uh, unretire uh, and go back to work again. Uh, Beverly and I both, and we're, we're still, what, I don't know, five, six years now, we've been back. Yes, yeah, because I've uh, been back here three years, maybe four. I think three. Three feels right. Because I came back, 
um, about three years ago because I left for, I guess I was gone for about four years, and then I came back. Um, well, that's how it all started. I, I had to do something. I had to have a store, and again, uh, the moms thing, moms was simple to remember because back then, uh, there was a lot more groups working on the road and what have you, and moms, right. you know, whoever took care of me better than your mom. Except I thought, man, someday somebody's going to be one of those people that got hell beat out of them from their moms, and they're going to probably pull out a gun and shoot me or something. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to shoot you, Mark. You're too awesome. But anyway, it, it was an easy thing to remember, and uh, uh, my initials were MDM, and I rounded out the D and come up with the moms, and besides mom, upside down spells. Wow. There you go. So anyway, that's how it all comes. I started. took my other shoe off to count the letters to make sure I did that right. <laughs> yeah, but you're missing a toe with that. Shh, don't tell anybody. That's my little secret, man. Oh shit. Now, what year was that when you opened the store? Would that have been the seventies or the eighties? No, it's around the eighties. Uh, right around the eighties, because uh, I was still playing six nights a week. In fact, I was playing clubs, but uh, I was going home one night, and that's I forgot. All, I had a I had a bad car wreck going home. Uh, uh, Concrete bridges don't move, and uh, not so much. I was—I uh, I live about forty miles north of here, up in Indiana, and mm-hmm. uh, I was going home, and I went to sleep, and run off the road just about a foot, uh, just a couple of miles from my house, and uh, hit a concrete bridge, and uh, uh, broke twenty-seven bones in my face, and I lost this right ankle. In fact, when they said when they opened this ankle up, that it ran out like salt. Oof. So, and they were going to take, uh, they had me on the operating table, and uh, Beverly, my wife, uh, they was wheeling me in for surgery, and and she, she said, well, what are you going to do to him? And uh, they said, well, we're going to try to take a bone out of his hip and put it in his ankle uh, and then and, and, uh, do something to it and seal it up, and but he wouldn't be able to, to, to move it anymore. Uh, he's just going to have to walk with a limp. And she said, well, you, she said, <laughs> bless her heart. She said, do you know who he is? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, no, ma'am, well, it doesn't make any difference. But she said, well, you can't do that. She said, he's a drummer, and that's what he does, and he has to have that foot for the bass drum. And they said, well, if we don't do this, he'll never walk on it again. And uh, so she said, well, don't do it. And they didn't. And... Uh, uh, gosh, uh, sometime after that, after I, I, I was really screwed up, to be honest with you, and I, I had to go home and get try to get fixed back up, and I was in a wheelchair and all that crap for some time, and and, uh, and it was funny because it was a gig came up on the internet, and it, it was a they was wanting a drummer, and all I could find out was it was in Kentucky, it was only a Saturday night, and the pay was ridiculously good, and I thought, my gosh. That's for me. <laughs> and I wasn't even thinking about it. And and, and, and and I didn't know who the dude was, but he later told me, he said, you know, he said it was 26 drummers trying to get this gig. And he said, I didn't know who you were because I come to find out he was from Lexington, Kentucky. Right. And he said, I put put it out there online. Who who should I pick out of this? And I think it was some of the headhunters, Kentucky headhunters, that put it out there. They put out, uh, well, Maxwell would be your best bet. If he just get his chops back together, that kind of pissed me off. <laughs> and then I got the thing about, well, hell, they're exactly right. Here I am on crutches, and <laughs> <laughs> so I made this weird thing out of a, of a. I still got it hanging downstairs there, out of a snow shovel handle, and a rubber tie down off of a 
tarp on a semi and stuck a drumstick through it and put my foot through that thing. And, uh, oh, did we blow up the computer? Uh-uh. It got sick. It's no. puking. No, it's good. <laughs> it's good. Let's see if it's still going. Oh, yeah, we're good. Uh, anyway, I made this thing to put my foot in, and I started working with it. And it took me a couple of months, but it, well, obviously, uh, I can move my foot. Yes, you can. Uh, and I, but to be honest with you, I can't go. I can't do it very fast. But the cool thing was, hell, I never could do very fast. Anyway, <laughs> I just wasn't that kind of drummer. You know, I never could play fast. I could play nice rolls and things because I'd, I'd studied and learned how to play open rolls and five-stroke rolls and seven and nine-stroke rolls and all that crap. So. Uh, yeah, but you got a really, really nasty shuffle, which makes me mad. Yeah, well, and I'm using nasty in a good sense. <laughs> well, the I've always been known so for doing good. shuffles, uh, and well, I don't I, know why. Uh, that, I don't know, but you pass that shit onto your kid too, because Max <laughs> has a good shuffle as well. Well, he listened. I'll be honest with you, and he was just not not much more than a baby. I used to take him into the studio with me. Did you? Yeah, and he would sit there, and, and uh, back then we used a drum booth, and I used to just set him down in in the drum booth, and he would sit there till I finish whatever session I was doing and so he got a pretty good education uh True. back in those days and, and uh, uh so that's kind of how that started but uh what was I talking about your foot thing oh well anyway I never could play fast anyway right and I and I'm even slower now than I was then because <laughs> my foot still hurts but, but did you get that gig no no that was the funny thing is the gig fell through I even uh. went down and I rehearsed with him a couple of times and uh Joe, what's his name? One of our keyboard players here. He was going to get the gig too. Joe Damato. Yeah, and I rode to, to Lexington with Joe, and we rehearsed with him a couple of times down there, and the damn gig fell through. Ugh. And, uh, and and I felt kind of like I'm all cleaned up and nowhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, I, you're dressed for the ball, and the ball got canceled. That's exactly right. <laughs> so I'm glad I did it because it forced me to to get my shit together uh, because again I never did play very fast very technical although on some of the sessions I did I try to throw in some some things that that drummers who don't read at all uh, one of the records we had out I had an open stroke roll on it and, and uh, I can remember when that record came out that, uh, that a lot of the young drummers would come out and want to see how I did that little I just did an open stroke roll is all I did but right uh, it didn't quite sound like that but it was uh, in fact that was a charted record that I belong to nobody, I think was the name. I don't remember the name of it. But anyway, I used to try to throw a few of those things in, more so than it happens nowadays. It didn't happen at all back in those days for some reason. But right. since I did st study those things a little bit, uh, I would try to throw those in when I could to show that I did a little something different than most guys did that didn't right. read. Well, and, and I'm probably speaking out of turn, especially in your presence, because I'm not as old as you and compared to you as you call me i'm a young cat but i'm still in i'm 43 so i'm not i'm not like 20 but the from just studying stuff of the past and the way musicians did everything back then it was always about the singer who the, yeah. the backing band was usually didn't make two shits well that's why that the, the dick clark things worked out like they did because we were the backing band for a lot of those acts right and uh, we were there just just to back the acts. We were popular in those days because some of those bands that got that gig doing those things were pretty shitty. Right. And 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 we were a decent band, and plus we had a horn section, and nobody had horn sections in rock and roll bands back then. Mm -mm. So we were very very popular. In fact, uh, it, it it was written in a couple of the old teen magazines. I remember Mark, uh, what's his name? He was a lead singer in. Uh, 
uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mark Lindsay, he had some records out on his own and such, but I remember he, a couple times they asked him what his favorite groups was, and he said the Beatles and a group called Soul Incorporated. Nice. Uh, uh, because, again, we had a horn section, and we could do things that bands without horns couldn't do. Right. And uh, so that's, again, that, that whole band... Well, I talk about the old Sambo Studios. That whole band was a studio band for Sambo Studios. We played all the sessions. Right. Well, so then it would you would agree then it would, and I'm not trying to be right, I'm just asking because I don't know, that back then it was all about the singers, and then somewhere in the probably the early to mid-60s it started to shift, and musicians became just as important as the singers. Yeah, and that was the same time. You know, we, we, were, we were wondering what happened to the, all the old, the old, old style of, uh, of rock and roll shows. Uh, and I read an article, believe it or not, by a guy that written an article in one of the newspapers, not here, but from another town. <coughs> and he was talking about it was the Beatles that changed everything. Promoters who promoted the shows found out that uh, they were uh, bands, uh, rock and roll and bands and things were so popular at that time that all they had to do was just get one biggie. And didn't make a damn what the other rest of the show was about, if there was any rest of the show. Right. And they found out that's the way they could do it, and it was it was simpler for them, and uh, uh, than taking a, a, a Greyhound bus full of crazy musicians and, and what have you. It was a simpler thing to do, and, and sometimes more even more cost effective. But those things all went away. But those were magic times because there was there was fun times on that bus. Uh, there was experiences that uh, that other people didn't get to do because you travel with these people for for a month at a time, and these were big big uh, big players in those days. The Birds and and again, Power of Raiders and Bo Diddley and gosh, I well, I gave you a list of a bunch of them, but uh, yeah, I'm going to get that list uh, in, a, in but, a little bit. But that was uh, that. I tell you something. Somebody else that uh, that's big now, especially in country, was Exile, uh, and they were back then they were called the Exiles, but. Uh, uh, they've done very well in the music business, and they they were from Kentucky also, and we were basically doing the same thing. They were because Dick Clark would have a couple of those tours going across the the lands uh, at the same time. Right. In fact, uh, when up when we were with the Stones, I think that was in Pittsburgh, and uh, and we, what you mean is you opened for the Rolling Stones? No, we didn't. But but here's what here's what the deal. We opened for a lot of people, right. and then we would back the show too. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, right? gotcha, gotcha. But when we when we got to uh, Pittsburgh, the Stones were headlining a Dick Clark tour. Okay, okay. And gotcha. and, and the Birds and Paul Revere was headlining our tour, and Bo Diddley, and they took both tours and put them together for one big show. Uh, and and we okay, weren't okay, the gotcha. big the biggie, and but we got to hang with them. Uh, backstage, but we didn't get to play that show. Uh, that was funny because uh, uh, who was it? Louise Harrison was on one of those tours with us. That was uh, George's sister. Right. That was a real trip because she couldn't sing her way out of a basket. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was crazy, man. She couldn't sing shit. And, and, and it was funny because Lauren Green, who played Ben Cartwright in. Uh, was a bonanza right he had a record out then that that was in the top 10 and it was about johnny ringo the outlaw johnny ringo that was uh, yeah it was uh, you know with yeah johnny ringo and uh, uh he had a record about johnny ringo and louise harrison she couldn't sing shit so <laughs> 
So she wrote this. Uh, I don't know why that makes me giggle. It makes me happy. It just <laughs> oh, it's funny as hell back then too. <laughs> but we had to we had to do this damn band track for Lauren Green's Johnny Ringo while she she uh, recited some poetry about Ringo Starr. I was waiting. Uh, yeah, for that. <laughs> absolutely. That, that was. <laughs> but that, I was so waiting. But she for looked that. just like George. I mean, in the mouth she looked like a '54 Chevrolet grill. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but she was a nice lady, and and uh, just ugly as shit and couldn't sing. <laughs> well, for I didn't shit. say that. She was she was nice. I'll say it. Well, I don't know her. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was a trip. Uh, I'm tattooed white trash, and I'm ugly as hell. I can say what I want. <laughs> Ain't nobody judging me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's other things about her that I can't tell, but uh, oh yeah, we won't tell. You know, we, she, we stopped on one of those tours up north, uh, uh, like wee hours of the morning. And uh, she called England and talked to George. And I think I'm right on this. She got back on the bus, and everybody had been waiting on this new Beatles album. And I can't think what it was going to be called. You know, everybody was just really waiting for this new album. And she got back on the bus, and she told us, she said, the, the, the name of the new album has been changed overnight, and it's going to be called Help. And I don't know what it was called prior to that, but we were the first ones in the United States to find that out because she had nice. just called. Yeah, it was it was kind of strange, but uh, so fact that she couldn't sing and she had a fifty-seven, fifty-four, grill, 54, 50, 54, sorry, fifty-four yeah. truck grill. Uh, it was a all forgiven. Yeah, all yeah. forgiven. Yeah, I, I, she might still be around. I don't know. She was. I don't know how old she'd be. I don't now. know, but when she gets pissed off, I'm sending her to your office. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably old. She couldn't make it. <laughs> but that was a real trip. Because Lou Christie was on that, that uh, well, you wouldn't know who that is either, but uh-huh. man, he had some big records back then. And uh, I won't tell you that story. I can't tell you. You'd love to sue me. He's still around. <laughs> he was a hell of a nice guy, too. That's all right. Since I've started this show, I've thrown some people under the bus. I don't care. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> can't, what, what's that? Can't get blood out of a turnip. Uh, well, I don't know. I have to work on that. If I was about 30 years younger and I was still a fe- speed freak, I'd... Out there trying to milk a turnip. <laughs> how many, um, how many records, or just you can do full records or single tracks. It doesn't matter. It's up to you. But how many records do you think you've played on? And there's a reason I'm asking you that. Well, uh, I, I don't know how many records. Let's say that uh, uh, as far as what was released, let's say they were forty or fifty of them. Right. I played on probably four or five hundred of them. Wow. Because never not, not everything got released. True. true. Uh, back in those days, you you uh, when you're dealing with a record label, you usually leased that that master. Uh, to, uh, to it reminds me of an Elvis story, but I won't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I won't get sued over that either. But 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 all that stuff. Hell, I guess come think of it. Very little of it got released. You know, everybody wanted to be a star, of course, and everybody thinks they can write a hit and all that stuff, and they're willing to go ahead and pay for a band to back them in the studio and all that crap. But a lot of that stuff never got released. A lot of that stuff that I've sto- got stored downstairs uh, never got released. And I'll tell you something else. Uh, any good studio is probably doing a lot of commercials, and there's thousands of commercials and all that stuff. And, in oh, fact, sure some of it is. was done on multi-track. Well, all of it was done on multi-track. But I've often thought, well, Lord, we ought to be able to, you know, that was back before when synthesizers were just coming out. And uh, nowadays you just punch a button for strings or what have you. Right. But in those days you use real players. 
and I've got all those band tracks that was done used on those 30 and 60 second commercials and I'll bet you on one of those tracks is the commercial for the company we did it for which we don't have to use and we could use those commercials all over again and have real instruments for another commercial you see what I'm saying button. Yeah. Oh, I totally see what so you're I just, saying. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, the reason I asked you that is because a few months ago, I walked in and you were beaming like a damn Christmas tree because your band, Soul Incorporated, had a song in a movie. Oh, yeah. And that you didn't it. even remember playing the damn track. No, we didn't remember the song. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were nuts. <laughs> I asked the record company and they, when they called and they said they, Tom Cruise... Uh, production got me once one of your tunes and i said you gotta be shitting me uh and this was for the tom cruise movie that was just released that i can't remember the name of do you remember uh, it's called american made that's it american made and uh anyway i said well what's the tune because all that stuff's been re-released you can buy it on cd and vinyl right uh and uh i said what's the tune and they said it's a tune called ultra blue and i thought to myself Shit, I don't remember what the hell that was. What the hell is that? <laughs> so I remember the, the the two other guitar players, uh, the two guitar players that played on the session. I called them, and uh, I said, it's a tune called Ultra Blue. And they said, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> so none of us remembered it. And so when, we, we all went to the Internet and listened to it, and we thought, oh, yeah, well, that's... But anyway, that's the tune. They used uh, 30 seconds of that tune in his new movie and and it was really it was really enlightening it was a real surprise of course but for them to pick something that we'd done 50 years ago it's kind of right. like painting pictures you know they don't go away and uh, that was really cool that that happened because you did that song in the 60s right yeah yeah it'd been over 50 years ago that's, yeah it'd been 50 years ago since we'd done it that's badass and uh and we hardly ever did instrumentals the only reason we did some instrumentals honestly i think is probably because uh, I'd been recording with Lonnie, uh, Lonnie Mack, and right. uh, Lonnie's big hits in the 60s are big hits. He had one called Memphis and another one called Wham, uh, and they were big hits and they were instrumentals. And uh, so I guess that's why we cut, the, we had a couple of instrumentals, and there was one called 727. Back in those days, you experimented a lot, you know? Right. Well, you had a lot more freedom back then. Well, yeah, but, but you didn't have all those sounds. Nowadays, you punch a button and get a sound. But I have beaten and shook every kind of thing that you can possibly think of <laughs> from a beer can to a light bulb uh, on somebody's record. And you told me that you want to do another thing that you've never done. What was that? Wait. I, I actually saved this for you. Oh, I'm gonna I, do I this. know what you're going to do. And I've never done it on the show because oh, I've been waiting for you. That's it. That's it. You ready? You ready? That's it. Now close it. That's it. Just for you. Sound of a Zippo lighter. I did, I did that just for you, Mark. <laughs> I've been waiting. To, I was like, I'm going to do that, but I'm only going to do it if well, Mark yeah, Well, I'll light up his joint. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. wait, 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 wait. There you go. Uh, but, yeah, I've always wanted to do that on a session, and I don't know whether we'll put it on this one or not, because I'm getting ready to release the last stuff probably that I'll ever play on to be released, and it's a bunch of stuff that uh, started back in 92. We... Uh, we were all old, and uh, we were doing stuff in the studio, and we were calling ourselves the granddads. In fact, we went to Europe and played in Europe, calling ourselves the shuffling granddads. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and since I owned the studio, I thought, back in the 90s, I thought, well, let's just go upstairs and cut some stuff. So we started some things, and it kind of got out of hand because there was five or six of us in this group uh, 
and it was a combination of Soul Incorporated and all that stuff. But anyway, they were all old players, friends, and we started cutting some stuff. And uh, then I had some, back, there was a lot of groups on the road back then. And somebody would come in town that was an old friend, and I'd say, come on upstairs and play on this session for me. So they'd go upstairs and play, play on a ride or something. Anyway, I started digging through that stuff a while back, and I pulled all these tunes out. And I got to looking at it, and there was 27 musicians on this damn thing. <laughs> and a third of them have passed on. A third, of, a third of them are dead. I th- uh, wait a minute. Uh, you showed me that record a few months ago. Yeah, that's a part of it, the Shuffling Granddads. Yeah, you showed me that in your office. I remember that. Yeah. There's well, some cool I, stuff on I there. dug everything out, and it was 28 tunes, I think is what it amounted to. And I'm going to release that just kind of like uh, in remembrance of uh, a bunch of us, because Cosmo sang a lot of it. Cosmo's a great singer, and, of course, he's dead now. And, and uh, hell, uh, we're all dying off, and I thought, damn, I got to counting this up, and nine of the 27 people that played on this damn thing are dead already. And I thought, shit, I better hurry up or nobody would be able to. <laughs> they won't even. So anyway, I'm, I'm uh, putting Yeah, that... but you're never going to die. You're going to be hanging out with Methuselah. You think so? Yeah. yeah. You're going to outlive us all. I don't know. Turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> See? You're going to outlive us all. <laughs> I still like that rock and roll, you know. That's... But I'm a big country music fan, too. I really like country music. I don't like today's particular country music, but ain't that always the way it is. You got people that come up and that's their music for them and the older ones don't like it. Right. But I I like, uh, I I have a lot of respect for conventional, what I call conventional country music. You know, I was talking to to somebody a while back about the new music in Nashville. And since the buyout of all the radio, you know, uh, Clear Channel bought out a bunch of stations and then iHeartRadio bought out Clear Channel and all that crap. And so, you don't have any stations you can go in and get any airplay uh, anymore, but, uh, oh, hell, what was I talking about? New country, old country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Nashville. Well, I don't even remember what I was going to say about it, but but I, I like I like the uh, the old country music. I like the new country music, too, but I don't like the old country music going away. Right. Uh, you know, Dolly Parton still sings her ass off, you know? And it, she couldn't get a record on with a million dollar bill, you know. And she just couldn't. Probably not. And and that, that's not the way it works. And that's why I hated to see all the radio stations get bought out because the entrepreneurs that did the cool shit on radio are gone. Yep. And and uh, and to be honest with you, as I understand it, iHeart's broke now too. So I you I remember you telling me that because I read that same article after you told me about it. Yeah. I just think it's funny because I, I think I've been teaching. I don't know, roughly 16 years. I've been playing drums for 30 years, whatever the hell it is. But there's a point a few years ago, probably five years ago, I was teaching one of my teenage kids, and he was playing me. He wanted me to teach him a song, and you know that, well, you may not know this. I don't teach my kids songs. I teach them theory, how to read, and how to fish. That's teaching you. Teaching you how to play a song is nothing. Well, they can do that that on their own. Yeah, that doesn't. Right. If they learn what you've taught them, they can do it on their own. Absolutely. They can apply it and figure it all out. So the point is, you wanted me to, I said, well, let me check the song out. And I had this moment where I remember my dad telling me that what my music that I listened to sucked. I was like, no, it doesn't. My music doesn't suck. What's wrong? Now I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Every 20 years or so, that happens. It does. And then I had the moment where I went, well, wait a minute. It's not that I'm old. Your music really is kind of shitty. Yeah. Because nobody cares anymore because of what you were talking about. The entrepreneurs that were trying new shit. The innovators that were trying to do different shit. The people that, for lack of a better term, just didn't care. 
It's like, yeah. hey, I'm going to put this out and see what the fuck happens. Yeah. They're gone. It's kind of like throwing a dice, yeah. Yeah, nobody wants to nobody wants to take a chance because they're so worried it's going to tank. And I think, my opinion, I think it's because of the Internet and social media because everything's instant. Yeah. Back then, you didn't have the instant gratification or the instant rejection. You had to build and build and build and build and, like you did, tour and tour and tour and do all that shit. And then at the end of it, you go... Hey, it actually kind of worked. Let's yeah. do it again. Well, you know, uh, that's that's the deal. You, you couldn't, uh, in, well, in this town or any town, you, you couldn't go to a radio station and get, get, get your record played to save your ass, except there's one small station here that plays nothing but Louisville, and, and man, I just I, that's just wonderful. The problem of it is they don't have any power. Right. So you could drive around the corner and, and lose them. But, <laughs> you know, one of, the, one, of the, the, one of the main jocks around town who's been on radio in this town for many years he still laughs about they used to see Marvin coming in the front door of the station. I'd probably have my hand behind my back, and they knew damn well I had a record in my hand <laughs> that I probably want to try to get them to play. And honestly, they usually always played it because they knew I wasn't going to take them a piece of shit to start with. Right. I did one time, but that... Uh, that don't, we won't talk oh about Lord, that. Oh, Lord, that was that's such <laughs> shit. Uh, I've, got, I've played on some sucky ass stuff, but they were all experiments. It's just like beating on everything. You Everybody looked for new sounds. Now you push a button and get a new sound. But again, I have beat on everything and shook everything. I even played, I played zipper on somebody's session. There was three of us, uh, we should have got a picture of that, but there was three of us standing <laughs> around a microphone, zipping our pants <laughs> to, to the beat of the, of the damn song. And I don't remember whose record it was or anything, but again, you, you were always looking for a new sound. Right. And nowadays, you just punch a button and get it. Back then, you had to make it. That's the truth. No, I I get it. You, you and know, I've talked about it before. I've 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 mentioned this in in interviews before, but uh, one of the things that I can still remember that was a funny thing that happened. Uh, and later on, I found out. Well, this was pretty cool. They were really ahead of things. For a reverb tank at the old Sambo Studios, they used the garage and they went in the garage, the car garage, and slicked it down real slick all over the inside, the plaster. Put a speaker in one end of the build, of the room, put a microphone in the other end, and they would pump your vocal or whatever you wanted out there. And that that garage was the echo chamber. Right. And I thought, man, that's that's kind of. And there was another studio here in town called Fultz. He was out in the country, and and he had a huge hundred thousand gallon gas tank, and it was buried under the ground, so he didn't pick up airplanes and shit when they went over. Right. But they would pump a vocal and a speaker out of one end of it, and they pick it up the other end with a microphone, and that was the echo that you got on your session. Huh. And, and I thought well, that's that's bullshit, but that's the way we did it. But you know, who was it that's in jail now in L.A. for killing that chick that was a big producer had the wall of sound? Uh, oh, uh, uh, Phil Spector. Yeah, Spector. They always talked about his wall of sound and, and, and this. And a lot of it was reverb. A lot of it was multi-instruments. Hell, they'd use three or four bass players and three or four of everything on sessions. But they wanted that reverb sound, and, and uh, there was different studios all over the country uh, offering him studio time. Just come here and cut in our studio. We want you to get that wall of sound. Well, come to find out the reverb chamber in Gold Star Studios was a propane tank buried underneath the driveway. That's the reverb you hear on all those sessions that Spectre did. Sure as hell huh. was, yeah. And I don't know if it's still there or not. The studio burnt, right? Uh, but the, if the driveway's still there, there's a uh, there's a, a a fuel tank underneath the driveway, and they pump something out through a speaker in one end of that tank, and they picked it up the other end of the tank, and that was the echo that it added to it. 
That's crazy. Yeah, that was. Uh, that I think was that was a, a bitch to work on if something broke. Well, it, nothing <laughs> broke. You know, he just had a mic in one end, a speaker in the other end. True. Out, and I was going to tell you, out in the garage, where at Sambo, that we used, uh, a lot of the sessions, of course, was went on at nighttime. Some of them all night, and I, I can still remember. Uh, of course, I was cutting. I'd have headphones on, and I, uh, I would say stop, and they'd stop the session. Somebody had to run out there in the garage, open the door, and kill the crickets. Because <laughs> <laughs> I could hear uh, crickets chirping in my headphones, you know. The hell it was, I couldn't keep time with the music. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we had to kill the crickets to <laughs> continue on. But that was the reverb that we got. That's awesome. Everybody had their own. In fact, I pitched it to Louisville. You know, the old moms across from it, you know, you don't remember this, but there was a water tower. No, because I wasn't here. Well, it was a huge wooden water tower next to Mom's, and it was it was an antique on its own because it was it was huge and had uh, it had Crescent Hill, the Crescent Hill area of Louisville, painted on the side of it. Right. And the uh, the water company owned it, and it had been used, you know, a hundred years ago or so. And they were tired of caring for it and painting it and everything, and they decided to tear it down. And I about blew my top because I was right, right next door to it, and I could see it right out the studio window. And I thought, man, what a reverb tank that would make. Uh-huh. And I could have done it with a, with a speaker and a microphone and two wireless systems, one going and one coming back. Yep. Uh, and we'd put it on a patch panel. We could use it anywhere in any studio in town, you know. Uh, and uh, I, I wrote a letter to the city. I said, boys, you don't need to be tearing us down. I said, you've got a real unique thing here that we could have as a reverb tank. And it was a it was 1.2 million uh, gallon water tank. That's how big it was. And I said, you could you could uh, you could advertise it, come to Louisville and record and get that million gallon sound. Then <laughs> 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 I wish I'd have saved it, but I threw it away. But I got a letter back. They they thought, well, we don't think that would make a very good reverb chamber. And I thought, what in the hell would you know about reverb? You know what I'm saying? But it would have been unique. You know about water. You don't know about That's right. But uh, that, they could have saved that thing and used that for a verb tank and been exclusive of Louisville, Kentucky. No, that's, that's true. All right, random question. Do you remember your very first show? Oh, no, Lord, no. My very first show would have been playing at the, in the school. Uh, let me think a second here. Damn near it, it was going on the road with Dick Clark. Because I was out of school, I was already married, we already had kids coming along. Man, we were young. Gosh darn. Yeah, you two have been together forever. I think I want to, well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, uh, Lord, no, I mean, we, because uh, I got out of school and uh, we went on the road immediately with Dick Clark. And we'd made a pretty good name for ourselves, in, in, especially in this area in Kentucky and Indiana. And so we were a fairly popular group, and so we'd come back to town and and uh, and work clubs in all these towns from Lebanon and uh, all around. You know, we'd work right. clubs. We right. worked all the time. We worked all the time. Well, that's because that's but what I don't you remember do. any of the the first gigs or the last gigs or anything. Because uh, again, uh, it was well, crazy they, in those days. They do all blur together. I, my students ask me that. Hell, even my wife Stacy asked me that. She's like, "Do you?" I mean, I remember first gigs and stuff like that, but. There was one gig when I was writing my book. I had to Google it because I didn't know that I played it. And I don't do drugs. I drank way too much coffee. I don't do drugs. But I had to Google it because I, didn't, I, I was like, I, fucking, I never opened for Sponge. What are you talking about? I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I can dig it. I wish I had, 
I wish I'd have saved more souvenirs and remembered stuff. Uh, I do too. Uh, back in the days, Dick Clark, you know, you, you really, you'd be surprised you become pretty close friends with people when you travel with them for 30 days, you know? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, uh, you know, at the end of a tour, you know, you'd, you uh, broken drum heads, you'd have everybody would sign them and stuff like that, and right. T-shirts and stuff. And uh, uh, when I went on the road like that, I remember I bought a, a little house over in Jeffersonville uh, to get the, the family into town. I didn't want to leave me out there in the country because that's where I lived and still do now. But I bought a little house over there, and I sold it. And I think I left all that stuff up in the at a place up in the ceiling, above the ceiling. And I think I put all that stuff up there, and I sold the house and went on to do other things. And uh, then they actually tore the house down. And uh, I don't know where all that stuff is, but I had all... Uh, somebody, who was it, man? They sat sat back in the dressing room one night. We was waiting to go on, and they took a bar of soap and they were they they carved a snare drum for me, really detailed with all the lugs and the, everything on it. And uh, I give anything if I had that damn thing back, you know. I, <laughs> I probably got stoned and took a bath with it or something. I don't know. But <laughs> no, that was probably upstairs in that old house, but. Uh, all those souvenirs. I don't have anything like that anymore. <laughs> that's, the, that's the quote of the month, brother. I got stoned and took a bath with it. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of this. A lot of stuff back when I was in the I had Maxwell Systems. Uh, uh, I, I designed and built a lot of weird uh, uh, things, electronic things and such that I wish I'd saved. But people steal from you and then you give things away. And I don't have any of that shit, man. Right. Well, you still have some cool shit, though. I yeah, I, and I still gather stuff. You I know. hang out in your office. You got some cool shit, honey. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of shit at home too. Uh, yeah, you've never invited me over. You don't well, love me that we much. Well, we will. We will soon. Well, uh, whatever. You yeah. just—I showed you my data, and it was over. <laughs> well, I showed you my watch call once, but you wasn't interested. So, <laughs> what the hell? It's because I saw your data when you were sleeping. <laughs> Came up to the house and shit in the woods with the rest of us. <laughs> But it's been an interesting life. I'm glad that that uh, uh, my kids didn't take so much after me of the, the the shitty things that I did, and they've turned out a hell of a lot better than I am, or I was. And uh, well, I don't know about all that. Uh, the family we've kept together, and that's kind of rare for anybody, but much less musicians, and especially as crazy as we were, because we were just really crazy in those days and doing a lot of that shit that you hear about. And we were all in the middle of it, and uh, we all came back alive. Most of us, did anyway. Right. Uh, but I, I'm glad that the, they didn't take take the bad things from me. Well, uh, you already mentioned it earlier when you figured out that Max had some skill because you used to take him in the studio with you. When did you figure out Mark had some skills? Did he, was he le- did he start later than Ma- than Max did? Yeah. Well, he's he's younger than Max, so that actually happened later. Well, no, no, no. I knew that. I just meant. Yeah, I don't Where remember Max how he started, started really to be honest because, then, you know, I really didn't pay that much attention to it. I just took it for granted that that's what they did and that's what they were going to do. Gotcha. In fact, when Max got started playing drums, he went to school and they were putting a school band together. I think he said he came home and said they signed up for the band and and I said, what are you going to He said, a trumpet. And I said, give me that damn thing. You can't make no money playing that damn thing. You need to, you need to be a drummer. <laughs> So that's why he's a drummer these days instead of a horn player. <laughs> and and uh, since I was selling guitars and all that crap uh, back in those days, I brought guitars home and, and showed Mark some chords. You know, it just seemed an automatic thing to do. And, and he just took it up right away. And 
I remember uh, when he was a kid, I went to see him, uh, him and Max play someplace uh, outside, and uh, I remember he uh, he went into a guitar ride and he was just burning it up up here, you know. And uh, right, he stepped up the mic and he kind of winked at me and said, "How's that, Dad?" When he come off stage, I grabbed him by the nap of the neck and I said, "Buddy." I said, you're not a guitar player yet. I said, you started that ride up there on the neck, and you had no place to go. I said, you, what you need to do is start that ride down at that other end of the stick. <laughs> and, by, and by the time that you get done with your ride, you're where you started that ride. Right. So then you'll be a guitar player. And it I don't remember how long it was later, months or next year or something, but I went to see him again, and, and he did. He, he and and he did. He started down here, and the time he got up there, he was just cooking, you know. Nice. And he stepped up, and and, and I said, "Okay, you're a guitar player now." You're... <laughs> <laughs> that was, honestly, it was a good thing that that Dad was there to tell him that because if not, he would. And he's a great guitar player now, although he won't play guitar. He just sings, you know. He's doing the Crashers thing. But right. he won't play guitar, and it really pisses me off because he's such a tasteful guitar player. Well, I've seen him play guitar. I've because I've obviously I've known you guys for since I moved up here. Um, but I have seen Mark play guitar, not just on stage. I mean, just being in a room with just him playing and just fiddling around. Yeah, and I went, "Holy shit!" I had yeah. no idea the first time I heard him play. I didn't know he could play that well. Yeah, he plays very well and uh, very distinctively him, and uh, he just doesn't do it on stage. It really pisses me off, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he's too big to kick his ass. I can't reach his ass anymore. <laughs> they grow big anymore, you know. <laughs> I'll get you a stepladder. I'll hold uh, him really, I'd have to have one, but uh, <laughs> I'd love to see him play more guitar because he can. And it kind of seems like a waste. But I'm just tickled that they're playing. Oh, yeah, they're killing it. I'm, I'm tickled they're playing and they're able to, if everything else falls down, that they can still play music. And, and it's rare to see them play together and, and get along together. Uh, well, not only that, and, and I'm not saying this because it's you and because it's them, it's just true. Cause I've been through it. I've had the same band for four years, but I've had one, two, three, three guitar players, four guitar players. They have the same members they started with 10 years ago. Hmm. It's the same. Crashers is the same six guys. Yeah. And well, that's rare in itself. Well, and, and, and uh, they... Uh, Luckily, they have the mother that they do have, because their mother is a wonderful person, and that has rubbed off on them a whole lot, because if they took everything they got from me, they'd be in a hell of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but, but some of that stuff they took from me, but their, their hearts and their, and their heads they took from their mother, who's a, a wonderful thing, and they, they've got a sister. Uh, she doesn't play. Uh, she doesn't play music. Well, there was music going on in our house all the time, and you know how young kids are. They ain't time for a sister. You know, right. they're not going to be in the same band when they're kids like that. Right. And so she didn't have that opportunity. Uh, and I, again, being on the road and doing sessions and everything, I never did take the time. I didn't really want her to play. Shit, I'd seen what Chicks was on the road about. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I didn't care it. for her to play anyway. Uh, but she's got her own thing, and she's got her own family, and, and she goes, she sings in church, and you know, the whole family is involved in music some way, even if they're not doing it professionally, they're doing it for the enjoyment because it it it, ha it does groovy things to your mind and your heart. And uh, anybody that plays music, it makes a better person out of them. I'm, I'm, I believe that wholly. Uh, it makes better people out of you. And I believe in music, trust me. I think I, it's good. I, I know you do. I've seen it firsthand. It's a damn shame that they have put all their energies and things into sports and the schools and things. 
and taking the music out of the schools, and, and evidently it's making people shittier. Look around, you know? <laughs> what can I say? Uh, it, playing music makes a better person out of you, and they all... People are I don't mind shitty. sports, but they need... Hell, back when I was in school, they, they played sports, and, and they would uh, the band would be playing at halftime and everything, and here the the ball players would jump up on stage in their skivvies and and play with the rest of the band. You know what I'm saying? You did right. both of them, and it, and it helps. But they don't do that anymore, and it's you know there's things are are not good. Uh, that's why I'm a I really believe in playing music. It does things for the head and the heart that should be. I I agree. Just look at Keith Richards. He's gonna outlive us all. Well, he's something. Ain't he? <laughs> Lord, 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 Lord! I do have some respect for all them boys. Huh? Oh, absolutely! Uh, I'd like to hang with them, uh, but that'll never happen. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were doing some things when we were on the road. Uh, we worked uh, we're, we're in Pittsburgh, and uh, it was it was odd back in those days. I tell you what, what the things that that uh, but the the, the uh, Segregation and things back in the '60s really sucked in some ways, and, and uh, things. You know, as, as an example, when when we were on the road with Dick Clark, obviously you got a whole busload of musicians here. You got to eat, right? And we would stop and invade a restaurant, basically, because you'd have 40 or 50 musicians coming into a restaurant to eat, and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, Bo Diddley and his old bands with it. And we music, musicians don't think anything about black and white. You know, no. they just don't think anything about it, and we didn't think anything about it. But we got down in the South, man, and uh, we'd go in a restaurant, and the rednecks were freaking out. We'd all come and sit and party and eat and everything together, and uh, the rednecks down South would pick up their plates and drop them about six inches off the table. Not high enough that they would break them, but it'd make a hell of a noise. Right. And uh, Mark Lindsay showed us how to, to wet your finger and rub around the top of a glass, you know, and make that weird sound that you get yeah like that whistle sound yeah and and the whole damn dick clark bunch was doing that and the rednecks over here were lifting their plates and dropping them and it was the damnedest sound you ever heard in your <laughs> life we should have recorded it and used it on a session or something <laughs> but that was uh things were different back then and and uh, when you could we have were, named it the maxwell spin uh, pardon you could have named it the maxwell spin well, shit to bed. Let's go on the road. I'll do it again. <laughs> no, but but it was weird. Uh, and and uh, uh, it, it, uh, when we were in uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, I remember uh, they actually had a race riot there. We had we were playing an area that was kind of like the fairgrounds here. It was big. Right. And we went out the back door, and we all got on the bus, and the shit hit the fan, and uh, the blacks and the whites were fighting like hell on the outside of the bus, and we were sitting way up high. We could look down and see all that shit going on. And we just couldn't get over because none of us had ever seen anything like that, and we just didn't even think anything about that. But shit to bed, it, it was different back then. It, uh, uh, and the Stones were hanging with uh, Patti LaBelle. She was on the, on that uh, one of the same tour, and uh, you know they were just uh, people in Europe don't think anything about that at all, like the Americans do. We're a bunch of damn rednecks. <laughs> Well, that's the truth. No, yeah. And, and a lot of the people I've from said Jimi Hendrix, all them cats, they went to hell back in the 40s and the 30s, the jazz musicians. They went over to Europe, and they made it basically over there and then came to the States. Yep. Uh, and because they couldn't be accepted here from the bottom on up, they had to go over there and make it and come over here, and then there were somebody. 
uh, we're just a bunch of damn rednecks over here, you know. <laughs> we are, man. We have ten- we have those tendencies. But uh, I, I get but it. we we you know uh, we uh, there was a uh, uh, on these Clark tours there was blacks and whites it didn't make any damn difference to anybody. Nobody ever had any problem with that at all. And uh, we we got to see uh, see America for what it really is because we saw it all back then. That's but, crazy. Uh, music music people don't think about that at all. No, we don't. So, I, I don't. I shouldn't say we, but. I'm going to say we because we don't. We yeah. don't look at shit like that. But uh, anyway, yeah. you know, so much of that crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I get out of here, because I don't want to take any more of your time, because you've been gracious enough to hang out with me. Well, I, you're paying me for this. What the hell? I didn't get paid for that damn record session last night. Damn, that means i got to pay you $22 well, I'll instead give you of the change. 11 I'll give you some change. All right, fine. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate doing this. This is the first podcast I think I've done... Many, many radio interviews, and I've done quite a few TV interviews and, of course, newspapers and what have you, but this is the first podcast I believe I've ever been involved with. Oh, well, I feel, I feel pretty honored to be Well, I'll, to I'm going to go home and sharpen my pot up a little bit, so the next time... <laughs> <laughs> well, before I let you go, before you get out of here, I do have one last question for you. It's actually kind of a two-parter. One, what do you like about your era over this era and if you could give any advice to up-and-coming musicians what would you say well i tell you what i don't really care for and and i hate to say it because a lot of people say this but it's what they call rap and i hate to have that included with music because to me rap is what it is and it has nothing to do with pitch so to me rap is prose or poetry uh and and it it has no pitch to it so it, it shouldn't be really rated uh rated as we do as music i don't think uh music has to have pitch and has rhythm and what have you uh what was the question (laughs) (laughs) no i'm serious what you asked me what do you like about where you came from versus what the state of music is now well for the time that i came from uh it was uh you had a reason to play music that was a little different now in that uh, if you had your shit together, uh, you could get on the radio. And that was a big carrot. Well, true. Getting on the radio. And, uh, uh, I mean, that was the goal. I mean, what, uh, and we teach, gosh, we teach, what, between three and four hundred people a week here. And what's the carrot to tell these young people? You know, get get to writing some tunes, man. You can get on the radio and what have you. That's not the carrot anymore because it's... No, it's not. it's, I'm, I'm having a hard time dealing with that. And uh, so music is music. I, I, I really, uh, I'm really not that much into today's country music, but every generation has its own music. Uh, in fact, I was laughing the other day. I, uh, you know, when, when radio was all bought out and somewhat the, the record industry went to hell and what have you, uh, I think, uh, well, there's a lot of cats on the East and the West Coast that were good rockers that went to Nashville uh, to find work, and I understand that. Right. But but that's not country because I, I I said a while back I'll bet you there are companies in Nashville that all they do is teach these cats how to sing and talk country. You don't say knife, you say knife. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And damned if it wasn't a group that came in here from Nashville and they said you're exactly right. There are companies in Nashville now teaching us how to sing and talk. Country words. No shit. Yes, sir. 
Because they're not, man. They came from the East Coast and the West Coast, and I understand they're looking for work. But the producers and things came from the same era, and they got their own thing going. But right. I'm missing that good old steel guitar and uh, some of those country licks and things. I just miss I miss country music. So that, to me, is a big change. But I guess we go through those things. Uh, that's I guess It's called evolution. I guess so. If that, uh, we'll, but, the, 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 you know, the type of music. We'll call it something and, like and, that. Uh, and synthesizers. Uh, I remember before there was any synthesizers at all. And again, if you wanted strings, buddy, you hired some string players. Right. Uh, where now you just punch a button and they're there. So right. the, the technology's changed. The good thing about what I'm doing, you still got a damn cylinder there. It's got a head on the top and the bottom. You grab a stick and beat the hell out of it, you know? That is the one thing I do <laughs> love about being a drummer. When the power goes out, I can still play. Absolutely. And I can you still listen to make it too. And that's what I teach these kids, uh, you know, uh, number one, whatever you're doing, try to try to learn something at different levels, at different volume levels, because everybody teaches to play loud, and it's easier to play loud, and I understand that. Right. It's harder to play soft, but you need to learn how to play those things soft, and just learn how to tap your foot, because when I play, uh, especially the type of music I like to play, not something that somebody's paying me to play a certain way but or not paying you and just telling you thank you for showing up <laughs> well I, I like i like to uh man I, I always say man if you look out there in the crowd after the first verse and you, you don't see body parts moving you've lost i agree i have i have said that on this very show yeah well if you, you're you, not you, making people move you're not doing your job yeah well i, I the music's got uh, something uh, they say drummers live longer than regular people because of the the rhythm of uh, of your heart beating what have you if I wasn't heartless, I'd probably be that way too. But, <laughs> but I don't know if you're heartless, but my wife does tell me I have no feelings. <laughs> well, it is what it is, bro. <laughs> Get to bed. You gotta speak for yourself. What the hell? I wish we could live forever. Uh, that that would be pretty cool because I don't know what uh, man I'd be in all kinds of trouble in wouldn't I? Yeah, Never you mind. would. I don't, I don't want to do that. But, no. What? Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe. Let's figure out if we can do it. <laughs> Let's look into that, Marv. No, I, I'm having a good time. Uh, I, I enjoy uh, seeing these kids come up and playing. And uh, uh, as as my folks were, turn it down a little. <laughs> <laughs> That's only because your office happens to be right under my room. Well, I can dig it. I know. I can sit down in my office and <laughs> I can tap my foot right along with whoever you're teaching up here. <laughs> That's the good part. The bad part is, damn it, O'Reilly's here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I enjoy this more than I ever thought. Uh, it's There's a certain amount of enjoyment to it and uh, seeing these parents. You know, we were the first ones to this thing that, that's movie that's out now, this School of Rock and all that, uh, that thing called Rock School. We were the first ones in the U.S. that I know of to experiment with that, and we did it for Japan to see if you could take four or five people off a street corner Put them in their own band the first day and have them on stage in nine weeks. That was the that was the the carrot behind Rock School, and we did it, and uh, we're still doing it. And that's been quite a few years ago when we, nice. we started that thing. So nice. It gives me uh, good feelings to 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 see these kids playing music, and it don't have to be kids. Hell, we've had father and son in the same band because if you if you start from zero, you know you can play in the same band. And, True. Uh, it, it's you, you're a better person if you play music. I agree. You're a better person. So to end this thing and wrap it up, I want to personally say thank you for what you do here. We don't have a sing-along song or anything? With, with the no, I do all that shit uh, later. Brush your teeth each morning. Get lots of sleep at night. <laughs> Find your mom and daddy because they know what is right. 
<laughs> no, I thank you, man. I thank you very much. And all you podsters out there, come and see me and bring money. Absolutely. 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 So that's it, man. We're out of here. Peace and love. I got to do one more thing. Yeah. Give me a high five and a microphone. Oh. Yes. Groovy. Well, that's it, kids. That's the show for the week. I hope you dug it. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you at least giggled a little bit. But more importantly, I, I hope you might have a newfound appreciation for the quote bygone era, the old dudes, whatever you want to call it. doesn't really matter. Uh, Marvin's a character, and I knew I would just have to say a sentence or two, and he would take it from there, and that's exactly what he did, and I'm super happy with it. Marvin's awesome. I get the pleasure of seeing him every day when I teach, and it's just an amazing... He's lived an amazing life. Um, The band he was talking about in the show is a band called Soul Incorporated, uh, and individual members in the band have either appeared and or backed some of these national artists. Uh, The Beach Boys, Chuck Berry, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Buckingham's, Birds, Lou Christie, The Coasters, Bo Diddley, which he talked about in the show, Four Tops, The Gatlin Brothers, Lee Greenwood, Brenda Lee, Lemon Pipers, Mark Lindsay and Lonnie Mack, who he talked about in the show, Barry Manilow, Paul Revere and the Raiders, The Rolling Stones, Billy Joe Royal, Round Robin, Sam and Dave, Sawyer Brown. Remember Sawyer Brown? Weren't they on, like, Star Search or some shit back in the day? Huh. I don't know. I have to go research that. Uh, the Temptations, Frankie Valley. It's just Bill Withers. He's just done so many things, and it's it kind of baffles me that my memory blows. We all know this, but jokes aside, my memory's not really that bad. I remember important things and a lot of the things that I've done, but I can't imagine doing what he's done because back then in the 60s, it was so much different than how we do shit now. Yeah, we've got the internet, and everybody's more connected, and I get it. I fucking get it. But back then, those guys grinded every night. They were doing four or five shows a night. People now that we don't do that, I would love to do that. But the majority of guys, especially the guys coming up, you couldn't pay them enough money to do that. They wouldn't know how to do it. So it's just a different era. It's, it's just really cool to, to listen to Marv tell stories like that. And that's why I had him on the show. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you dug it. I hope you learned something. But most of all, I hope you at least have a different appreciation for us old dudes, especially Marvin. He's like crazy old. I think I'm old. I get around Marvin. I'm like, man, I hope I'm like you when I'm your age because that is just badass. Don't forget to check out my sponsor, Prophecy Inc. Remember, if you walk in the shop and you mention the Bar Star podcast, you will get 10% off your tattoo by any artist in the shop. And that is amazing. Travis is a big supporter of the show, and I am a big supporter of Prophecy Inc. So it kind of works out. And remember, wherever you get your podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, subscribe, review, rate, any order you want to put those three words in. I don't care. Uh, Tell a friend. Tell a carrier pigeon, tell a wrestler, tell your dog, tell your cat. I don't really give a shit who you tell. Just tell somebody. Let's grow this thing and make it big and see where we can go. And as I say at the end of every episode, go do some shit. Seriously, beat it. Fuck out of here. So until next time, I will talk at you soon.